Okay, y'all turn your Bibles to Romans 1, 16, 17, or in your bulletin, uh, the passage is there. Uh, I'm just going to ask you two questions. One, one question to those of us here who are not Christians, and then another question to those of us who are. Here's to those who are not Christians. You know you're not, you're self-consciously not. Uh, I wanna, I'd love, if I could sit down and have an individual conversation with you, I'd want to get an answer to this question. What is it about Christianity that is somewhat attractive to you? What is it? I mean, why would you check it out, and why are you checking it out? Could it be uh, the teaching, its worldview, its take on life? Uh, could it be its code of conduct, its, its morals that, that Christianity takes seriously, right living? Is that what attractive to you? Uh, could it be its people, its community? I would love to hear your take on that. Uh, could it be the, its commitment to God, that, that Christianity is obviously committed to God, and that's attractive to you? Could it be its good advice? That Christianity has a lot of good advice on, on life and living and relationships. Um, what could it be? Could it be that there are great acts of service that come out of Christianity? Uh, that there's this outward feel of loving and serving others and doing that in words of comfort and doing that in, in actual deeds of mercy. Is that uh, what is attractive to you? What is it? And then Christian, I just would ask this. What is your core attraction to Christianity? Teaching? Um, morals? Um, people in community? Um, what else we got here? Our commitment to God? The good advice that we get here? On life and living and relationships? Or acts of service? Right? Uh, the very first line in his new book in Romans, Tim Keller, he writes this. He says, the letter to the Romans is a book that repeatedly changed, changes the world by changing people. The world-famous and world-changing English pastor, John Stott, he was personally challenged by Romans as a Christian. He said in his commentary Romans, he wrote of this, I have this love-hate relationship with Romans. He says, uh, because of its joyful painful personal challenges. It was Paul's devastating exposure, the universal human sin and guilt in Romans 8, Romans 1, 18 through 320, which rescued me, he said, from that kind of superficial evangelism, which is preoccupied only with people's felt needs, end quote. You know, what does that mean? We'll explore that a little bit. How many of you know who Augustine is? Fourth century Bishop of Hippo, which is now modern day Algeria. Uh, he's perhaps the most popular pastor in the history of the church. I mean, every church tradition, almost every church tradition and every stripe of Protestant or Catholic Christianity wants to claim him as their own. Well, everybody but the Pelagians will just say that, all right? Everybody else does. They want him as their own. Well, he had a Christian mother, but he wanted nothing to do with her faith. Nothing. In fact, to his own admission, he worshipped fun and pleasure, particularly the attention and the sexual intimacy of women. He actually fathered a child out of the wedlock. And he said, uh, one day he heard Bishop Ambrose preach and he couldn't shake it off. Just was, just couldn't get rid of some of the words that was saying. And this is, this is his account. The tumultuous reality of my heart took me out into the garden where no one could interfere with the burning struggle within myself in which I was engaged. I was twisting, this is a great line, I was twisting and turning in my chains. 
suddenly I heard a voice from a nearby house chanting as if it might be a boy or a girl, pick up and read, pick up and read. So I picked up and read the book of Romans. It was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All shadows of doubt were dispelled. That's pretty powerful. How about Calvin? He's the pastor and the theologian of the, the Reformed and Presbyterian tradition. You know what he said about Romans and his personal ongoing um, realities with that book? He said, entrance, it's an entrance into all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. And then perhaps the most famous of all is who? Martin Luther. Luther was a German monk, and he said he grew to hate God. Why? He said, because God required of him stuff he couldn't do and then left him to fail in the stuff he couldn't do. One day he was reading Romans 1, 16 and 17 as a German monk, which is the passage we're looking at today. And he said he was desperately trying to grasp its meaning. He said spiritual sweat was pouring out of him as he was wrestling with this text. And then he said, it finally opened up to him. Quote, thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. I broke through. Why is Romans so life-changing? Why is Romans so history-shaping? There's only one reason. Because it's a book about the gospel. So as we unpack this particular verse, let's ask God to give us a Luther-like experience. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, but that we would all break through with a deeper understanding and heartfelt reality of whatever it is that's so powerful and life-changing in this passage. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. you tell me. Romans 1, 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The word of the Lord. Oh God, we ask um, for bold. We ask boldly, we ask courageously uh, that you would shine on the page, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would give us a breakthrough uh, wherever we're at, a deeper breakthrough into the power of the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, 17 years ago as a student, I was preaching my very first sermon at Christ Presbyterian Church uh, in Flower Mound, Texas. And do you know what my very first sermon and very first text was? <laughs> Romans 1, 16 and 17. Uh, so I pulled it out this past week and started to read it, and it was very painful. <laughs> I was cringing through, oh, oh, 
I said, this is bad. Um, and then as I was saying, this is bad, the words of one of, probably one of the greatest preachers in our time uh, was telling a bunch of future pastors, says, look, your first 200 sermons are always horrible, so you might as well get them over with as quickly as possible. So I started to feel better again. But why look at Romans 1, 16 and 17? Why? Um, if the book of Romans was General Sherman, and General Sherman, you know, I mean by the largest living tree in the world. That's what that tree is named. It is a giant redwood in California, 270 feet, uh, 5 feet high, 25 feet wide, and estimated to be 2,700 years old. If the book of Romans was General, General Sherman, uh, Romans 1, 16, and 17 is its seed. The book of Romans is contained in seed form in Romans 1, 16, and 17. Romans 1, 16, and 17 is Paul's thesis of the whole book. The whole book is packed into that verse. The whole book grows out of that verse. So it is a powerful verse, and it has been powerfully used in many, many people's lives down through the centuries in the history of the church. So why not you and me, right? Why not? So here's what we're going to do. First, we're going to look at what's the big deal about what's inside this verse. Why is it so life-changing? Why is it so history-shaping? And then we're going to have one application. We're going to end with one. That's it. Now, there'll be applications throughout. But we're going to end with one. And if that one becomes real and true to all of us, I mean, look out. That's all I can say. All right, what's the big deal about Romans 1, 16 and 17? Look at 16a, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel? What is it? Uh, Everything hinges on how you and I answer that question. One of my um, early theological friends said this. Here's what the gospel is not. It's not anything you do. And it's not anything that happens inside of you. So that right there eliminates a lot of stuff. It eliminates powerful emotions. It eliminates passionate exhortations and willpower. It eliminates behavior and life change. It eliminates a lot of stuff. Here's what's interesting. This word literally means good herald or good news. And it has a very, very specific meaning in the Greco-Roman world. In other words, it's not a word that you can just take and make it whatever you want to make it. In the Greco-Roman world, it meant something very, very specific. And you know what it meant? It was only used for an emperor or a king who went out and did battle because of an invading army. And then he would send messengers back to the land, to the capital city, with a proclamation, a declaration, a report, good news of his victory. That's what gospel means. Now, those of you who know Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's called like the last great Puritan. And he put it famously this way. He says, look, if barbarians invade your country, and I'm thinking, barbarians invade our country, it's probably my ancestors, the Vikings. So let's say that happens. Uh, And they leave destruction and desolation and despair in their wake everywhere they go. And the king of the land gathers his army and he goes to engage this uh, foe. 
He marches out and gets obliterated. And the last act before this king ends in a violent death is he sends messengers to go back to the capital city. Those messengers come into the capital city and what do they do? Fight for your lives. Archers on the wall. Calvary at the west gate. Women and children, hide. The messengers come back with good advice on how to survive. On how to survive and possibly achieve a salvation. You know what's different, completely different about this word good news? It's radically different than that. In this scenario, the king comes in and crushes the foe. And when he crushes the foe, he sends messengers back to the capital, yes. And it's back to announce gospel, to announce good news, to announce, look, he won. The king has won. There's life, there's peace. Uh, Celebrate, right? There's joy and there's celebration in the streets. And it's glad tidings, good heraldings. It's joyful, it's Nike, it's victory. Victory, victory. And the messengers bring good news, gospel of the king's victory. Now Romans begins its first four verses, very interesting. You know what it does? It ends up tracing the lineage of a ultimate universal final king and his lineage in Romans 1 1 through 4 goes through two lines of lineage one that goes all the way back to God himself and another that goes back to Israel's greatest king who ever lived and those two lines come together to find and found this ultimate universal final king named Jesus The gospel is the good news of this king's victory, of this king's fight, of this king's achievement, of this king's work, of this king's accomplishment, of this king's merit, of this king and what he does. What's the big deal about Romans 1, 16 17? Because the gospel It's good news, not good advice. And I'll tell you, if we get that, it will change your life. It also changed the way you look at teaching, and it will change the way you choose a church, and it will change the way you look at things. Because let's be honest, Christianity today is about good advice. We're all telling people good advice. That's great. It's good advice. Okay, I got some helpful tips. The heart of Christianity is good news. The gospel is about what someone else has done, what someone else has accomplished, what someone else has achieved, not what you and I do. All right, look at 16b. For it, the gospel, is the power of God. Notice what it's saying or what it's not saying. It's not saying the gospel has power in it. It's not saying the gospel brings power with it. It's saying the gospel is power. Why? Why is the gospel the power of God? 
Well, there's two reasons in this text. One, because the gospel is is the king himself. In other words, the gospel is Jesus' person. The gospel is the glory and the life and the radiance and the worth and the wonder of Jesus himself. But the second reason is that it's, it's what he has done. So it's the king that's gone out and he's gone and faced him. He went to a land that has been destroyed and desolate by sin and guilt and all kinds of horrible things. The great chaotic deep that we looked at last week. And he wades into it and he, he obliterates it. He crushes it. He wins. And so the gospel is both his person and the gospel is his work And the two are fused together forever. And his work is stuff that he's done in history, real life events, accomplishments, acts that are completed and over. And so theologically speaking, we could say that the gospel is Jesus' events, what he has done. And because of what he's done, what he now does and what he will do, as Thomas told us. We have these gospel events and then we have these good tidings, this good news, these reports, these messages about those events, and they are forever the event and the message fused with power. So for instance, this means the gospel is not and can never be empty words. It can never be empty ideas and concepts and philosophy and a proposition. The gospel is living words power-infused words, God words. One theologian puts it this way. In the gospel, words and power come together. The gospel message is actually the power of God in verbal cognitive form. It lifts people up. It transforms and changes things. When the gospel is outlined and explained or reflected upon, its power is released, end quote. So the gospel lifts up, the gospel transforms, the gospel changes things because it's the power of God for salvation. Do you see that in verse 16? The whole package of salvation is accomplished. Now that word salvation is a suitcase word. It's got lots of clothing in there. And it's a comprehensive salvation. It's a complete salvation, which means justification, which is a theological word for how you become a Christian. Yes, Uh, How about sanctification, growth and change in the Christian life? Yes. Well, how about what takes you to glory? Well, how about what the final, full fulfillment of all things in the new heavens and the new earth and when it's all here and it's complete and new? Yes. The gospel is the power of God for a comprehensively complete salvation. It's done. For Christians, this means your growth and your change, which is called sanctification. So there's an immediate application here for us. And that is the gospel is the power of God to grow you and change you, Christian. And so there's an implicit application for us. Do not be ashamed of the gospel, Christian. Do not be ashamed of the gospel by looking to something else other than the gospel to grow you and change you. If you look to the law to give you power to grow and change, we are ashamed of the gospel. If 
you look to some form of self-effort to give you the power to grow and change as a Christian, we are ashamed of the gospel. If you look to great emotion and dramatic occurrences and biblical principles and eternal truths, as the power to grow and change you, we are ashamed of the gospel. So look, look to the gospel. Look to the gospel as the power to grow you and change you. Now, obviously, that comes with something, and that comes with many of us who are like, good news, what are you talking about? I mean, I mean, I thought the gospel is what happens when you become a Christian. Now you're saying the gospel, this good news is what I hear as a Christian, and it unleashes power on me, and it grows me and changes me, and the answer is yes. That's exactly what we're saying. And also saying, well, I don't understand how that works. I don't know that. It doesn't work for me. I don't get it. And the answer is, figure it out. The answer is, let's do it together. Let's figure out what that means. The answer is, well, I can't figure it out, so now I'm going to go to other things and be ashamed of the gospel. Okay? All right, so what's the big deal about Romans 1, 16 and 17? One, it's about good news, not good advice. Two, the gospel releases power. What's the third thing? Look at 17. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. This is phenomenal. What is, what is it about the gospel that makes it so powerful? According to verse 17. What is it about the gospel that makes it so powerful? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. There's the power. What is the righteousness of God? How we answer that will direct your life. Do you know that this struggle with that idea right there was Luther's great struggle in 116, 17, and he said it almost killed him. He said as a monk, he struggled and he struggled to understand this passage. In fact, here's his own words. I labored diligently and anxiously to as to how to understand Paul's words. The expression, the righteousness of God, it blocked the way because I took it to mean the righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner. Therefore, I did not love a righteous and angry God, but rather I hated him. And I murmured against him. And he goes on to say, then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us by faith. I broke through. And as I had formerly hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now began to regard it as my dearest and most comforting friend. The righteousness of God is not God's righteous character. It's not God's holiness. It's not his blinding, unapproachable purity and perfection and excellency. What broke through for Luther was not that it was the righteousness of God, but that it was the righteousness from God. 
That was the breakthrough. In other words, it's a completely different kind of righteousness. It's not the righteousness of God's character in terms of who he is, which is affirmed and loved and celebrated by all in the scripture and by the law. But what's revealed, the power that's revealed in the gospel is that it's not a righteousness achieved, it's a righteousness received. It's a righteousness that's given. It's all the wonder of perfect cosmic perfection and validation and acceptance and excellency and the righteous standards of who God is in his character. But now it's freely given. It's a righteousness already achieved by someone else. And who is that someone else? Oh, we, we read about him in one through four, the beginning of chapter one, that final ultimate universal king named Jesus. So that king comes here because he's from two lineages, remember? God himself and the greatest king that probably ever lived in the history of the world. It's certainly in Israel's history. And from those lineages, he completed and accomplished and did what a human being is supposed to do and be before God. He was the perfect servant. He was the loyal son. He always loved God and he always loved people. He kept the law perfectly obediently, perpetually in his thoughts and in his emotional structure and his motivations and his actions and his behavior, he did for, he did righteousness for those who have none. That's the power of the gospel. So the gospel is so powerful because in it, God freely gives Jesus' righteousness to those who have none. That means the struggle for righteousness is over. For you, Christian, too. Because if we were to diagnose every human heart here, at the bottom of every sin, according to the Bible, is a struggle for righteousness. So the only way you change, Christian, the only way you grow is when that struggle ends by realizing you already have it so you don't have to find it somewhere else. Okay, so what's the big deal about Romans 1, 16, 17? It's about good news, not good advice. It's about the gospel releases power and the gospel releases righteousness. So what's the one application? Are you ready? Here it is, seek a breakthrough into the power of the gospel. Seek it. Seek it for the first time and you become a Christian. Seek it for the second, third time, fourth time. Welcome to the Christian life. So seek it, pray for it, ask for it. And why? Why do we need a breakthrough? Because of verse 17. Look at verse 17 again. The gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness from God is revealed to what? To faith. There's the key words here. You got revealed in faith. Those things tell you we need a breakthrough. Faith tells you it's deeply personal. Faith tells you it's about you. Faith tells you that you grasp it. Faith tells you that it's real to you. Faith says you connect with it. But re revealed means God must do it. Do you see that? You can't imagine this thing. 
You can't will it to be. It's got to be revealed, which means God does the work, which means that God, by his spirit and his word, must reveal it to us, which means God must make it clear to your mind and real to your heart. It's revealed. It's also revealed. What's fascinating about that word revealed, it's in the present tense. So this is not talking about when Jesus first showed up and and righteousness was revealed. It's present tense, which means it's continuously, it's ongoing that his righteousness from God is continuously ongoing today, right now being revealed. Because when we get to Romans 1.18, so is the wrath of God, present tense, right now being revealed. Not just in the future, not just in some event in the past, right now. And then notice the other word that's really, really key, and that's faith. In verse 16 and 17, you see the bookends of faith. Faith first, faith present, faith end. There are two translations. From faith for faith, or from faith the first to last. Take your pick. They both have similar meanings, but overall the bookends are the same, which means that it begins by faith and it continues by faith. In other words, this power, you connect to this power. This power is revealed to faith. To become a Christian and to faith as a Christian from beginning to end because it's always been this way, says Habakkuk. The righteous have always lived by faith. So pray for your breakthrough. Read your Bible for a breakthrough. Study your Bible for a breakthrough. Go to church for a breakthrough. Sing for a breakthrough. Build friendships and do community for a breakthrough. Do ministry to others so they have breakthroughs, and you do too. Go to, go to midweek for a breakthrough. Do Sunday school for a breakthrough. Do small groups for a breakthrough. Seek a breakthrough, okay? So what's the big deal about Romans 1, 16, 17? Why has this verse changed the world and changed so many lives? Because it's not about good advice. Everybody's got good advice. Good advice does not save you. Good news does. In the gospel, power is unleashed. In the gospel, righteousness from God released. Seek a breakthrough.